My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Covenant in Sterling, and I love seeing you on Sunday mornings. Thank you for being here to celebrate this Advent season with us. Uh, we are in a series on the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to continue in that series today. But first, I want to I do something. Pastor Eddie uh, made a statement that people are more open, kind of statistically speaking, to attending church, and they're more open to the gospel during the Advent and Christmas season. And so I want to make sure that we didn't just hear that as information and then move beyond it. Uh, that is kind of the habit in, in today's society, uh, be it because of commercialization of things or, or uh, just our, our need to filter so much of what we see, all the messages that are surround us and are all around us. We filter out what we think to be just random information or unimportant information, but every once in a while, we accidentally throw out something that's really, really valuable and really, really important, not realizing that it's significant information that can or should be acted on. Uh, There was this uh, transformation that happened in the way that we interact with information as the information age picked up, and and that's that, uh, like I said, we started started filtering things out, and we also had this idea that uh, if we just had more information, things would change. All we need is more ideas, and then things will, will change. But that's not the reality of, uh, in many ways because uh, knowing that I need to do the dishes doesn't actually clean the dishes. And knowing how to clean the dishes doesn't actually clean the dishes. And so knowing that our friends are open to an invitation to church or open to the gospel during Christmas doesn't actually introduce our friends to the gospel during the Christmas season. You tracking? You feel it? You hear it? So what I want to do is I want to take a moment right now. And um, since Reggie left, it's going to be a quiet, awkward moment. But go ahead and take out your phones or you're, if you're taking notes on a journal or something else. And thank you, Reggie. Do you, can you play You Got a Friend in Me? Do you know that song? Baby Shark then. No, not Baby Shark. Just some background music. What we're going to do is we're going to write down the names of five friends right now in this moment, five friends or family members. Uh, They have to live in this area, and they're people that you're going to pray for and people that you're going to invite to participate with you in this Christmas season. Uh, It doesn't have to be church, but man, what a great time to introduce them to your spiritual family. It could be be just to a small group that you participate in. It could be to another uh, activity, like the music and Advent thing tomorrow night. And our Chantilly location, it could be the candlelight service, the Christmas Eve service. Five friends who live here locally. If you've got friends, they don't even actually have to be your friends. They could be somebody you really don't like. Uh, What better thing to do for somebody that you really don't like uh, but to introduce them to Jesus? And maybe Jesus will help both of you in the process. (laughs) The honest among us said amen. Now, your list can go beyond five, and I hope, that it, I hope that it would. It can include people who aren't local, but you need those five local people. And in just a moment, uh, we're going to pray for them together. you want extra credit, you can text them right now. Just be like, hey, about to pray for you in church. (laughs) 
but you got to know your people because that could cause problems also, right? All right, uh, raise your hand when you get your five. All right, we'll go a couple more minutes and then we'll stand. Not minutes, a few more seconds. Anybody got a friend named Rudolph at work? <laughs> we'll pray for Rudolph. All right, I want to invite you to stand with me and we're going to pray for your people. You guys know the name of that song? It was Israel, right? Yeah. Friend. It's called Friend. Friend. There will never be a friend as dear to me as you. There will never be another closer than another. Yeah, it's fun. All right, so we're going to pray for our friends because we have a friend that's closer than every other friend, and his name is Jesus, and he loves us. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we, we have written down the names of people who you put on our heart in this moment. And our heart's desire is for them to come to know you in this season as more than a distant person or a historical figure, more than a God that, that can't be known or is unknowable or they don't desire to know, but they would come to know you as Lord, Savior, indeed, even as a friend that's closer than any other friend who redeems and restores and, and saves us and delivers us from the shame, the grief, the guilt, the insecurities that chase after us. God, we lift up these people. We lift up these friends, these co-workers, these family members. We lift up those people who we don't like and we added them to our list because we felt you pressing on our heart that, that we need to, to get over ourselves or that, that the thing that we, we, the way to best express your love would be to engage them in love. So God, we ask that you would prepare their hearts for an invitation. God, that as we approach them to have this conversation, that, that we, would, we would recognize that we're stepping into a conversation that's already going on in their heart that you're already drawing people to yourself and we're just simply echoing what you're speaking from eternity. We love you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, sir. So now that we've prayed, uh, we're, we're almost halfway there in terms of loving, loving the people whose names you wrote down. The only remaining factor is that you need to invite them. You need to engage in a conversation. Um, so far, my favorite intro to Christmas Eve invitation is, hey, do you have plans for Christmas Eve yet? And if people say yes, then I'm like, off the hook, sweet. <laughs> Just kidding. If they say yes, they've got plans, I'm like, hey, what about, what about the next few Sunday mornings? My church is celebrating Christmas all season long. And we would love for you to come and, and hear what the season is about for us. And it's pretty. And we decorated the stage. It's a lot of fun. We'll sing a Christmas carol. And, and I would love for you to come and be a part of it. 
And so I would encourage you to, you can try on that script. You can try on a better script. And if you come out with some way that's really effective, you can email us and be like, hey, the most effective introduction is, hey, let's get lunch and then an invitation or something. Just let us know what's working and let us know what's not working. And uh, we'll share that with everybody and, and we'll all get better at leveraging these moments for the kingdom and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. So we are in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And as we uh, jump into this series, what I want to do is uh, actually what we've been doing to date is we've been going through the fruit of the Spirit by name. And so far we've talked about love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. But what we're going to do the next two weeks is we're going to hit pause on our progression through the fruit of the Spirit. And I want to offer context again so that we don't forget why we're talking about it. It would be real easy week to week to just start thinking about each, each uh, aspect or each quality and start just pursuing the quality and not understanding the purpose for the fruit that, that God desires for us to walk in, right? I even found myself in preparing for the message this week, I was so caught up on goodness, I forgot about the purpose of the goodness that we're supposed to bear when we're in Christ. I, and I kind of lost sight of that. And so I thought, man, if I'm preparing for this every week and I, and I should know the purpose maybe better than everybody else because I'm teaching on it, how easy would it be for those of you who are coming week by week just to, just to start focusing in on, on patience and, kind, and get blinders to each of these qualities and lose sight of the purpose or the context for these gifts to be expressed. So what we're going to do the next two weeks is this week I'm going to talk about the, the purpose of the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the biggest picture of Scripture. So we're going to, I'm going to talk about a lot of passages. We're going to talk all the way from Genesis through Revelation. And we're going to talk about where the fruit of the Spirit fits into that narrative. Kind of where do we land in that narrative? And what's the role of the fruit of the Spirit in, in, at, when we look at it in that big picture? And then next week, we're going to talk about it a little more dialed in. And we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit at the time when the people were first urged to pursue the fruit of the Spirit. And what would be the result of them walking in the fruit of the Spirit? Amen? But it's also Christmas, so you'll hear a little bit of the Advent theme coming through all of it too, so don't worry. Uh, We didn't forget. Uh, So what I'd like to do is um, I'd I'd like to ask you to just stand one more time and we'll read this together. So this kind of sticks in our heart. We'll just pin it to the top of the message and we'll return to this at the end of the message. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. God, this is your word to us. Uh, It's my desire today that you would stir our hearts with anticipation for your coming glory. And you would give us an appetite, a desire, a thirst, a hunger for more of you in our life knowing that as we pursue you with diligence and as we pursue you with zeal and eagerness, that this fruit will be evident in our lives according to your loving kindness and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The Bible can be broken down a lot of different ways. The, uh, the most prominent way that you see visible is the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Promise and the New Promise. Um, and what we have uh, is also another, another way to do it is to, to break it down into kind of uh, four major blocks of, of time. And so the four, the four divisions that I want to talk about today is the time of creation, 
the time of the fall of man, the time of redemption, and the time of the new creation. And then I want to talk about the role of the fruit of the Spirit as we anticipate the coming of the new creation. I'm doing it a little different because we didn't have room for a TV today. Before there was anything, God existed. He existed fully satisfied in himself as the Trinity, as the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, existing outside of space and time and, and everything. There was, just, there was just him. And because he existed in himself with complete love, he determined to produce something out of himself. Because love always produces something. Love always produces generosity and creation of good things. And so God decided to create. In Genesis 1.1, the very beginning of the scripture, we see the, the, the creation statement that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this statement uh, was, was it, I, I learned from somebody far smarter than me that in even that little statement, uh, the author, Moses, who we believe to be Moses, basically established the three necessary components for all of us to be able to exist. In the beginning is time. God created the heavens, which is space, and the earth, which is matter. And so if you have time with no space or matter, you don't exist because there's nothing to set you inside of. If you have space but no, and, and time, if you don't have space but you have time and matter but there's nowhere for you to be, then you can't exist. And then if you have space and time, or if you have time and space but no matter, we don't exist because we matter and it doesn't matter and is how many of you feel in this moment. But it's significant because we see that, that even Scripture answers questions that, A, people weren't even asking at the time. B, science and philosophy and physics are just now beginning to uncap and realize, oh my goodness, look how absolutely brilliant this introductory idea is in Scripture, written thousands and thousands of years ago, not understanding the wisdom that he was speaking with. Moses didn't know the wisdom that he was speaking with when he, when he was led by God to, to inscribe this. He, he was answering the question at the time, which was to tell people, hey, you think you've always existed, or you think that you're some hybrid of all these other gods and creation stories, and that there are all these gods creating at the same time, and there's a regional God over there and a regional God over here. But I'm telling you that there's one God who created all things, and out of him, all things have come. And he takes the first 11 chapters of Genesis to describe not just just the creation, but he, do, he takes time to describe the God of this creation, not just, that he's a, not just that he's a creative God, but he's also a loving and a covenant God. Okay, so this is the, so he talks about not only creation, but the nature of the God who created it, and then he takes time to describe us and the condition that we're in, and why is the earth the way that it is, and why are relationships the way that they are, and why is our condition and our predisposition the same, regardless of all the technological advances that we've faced over time and all the advancement that we've had sociologically, the human soul remains the same. So when we read about Moses or we read about Adam and Eve, you know, we like to think that they were cavemen and they were just banging rocks and they were dumb and we're smart because we have iPhones or Androids, even Androids. Oh, I don't have a dog in that race. I don't care. So, um, 
But we think that we're advanced because we have technology, yet our soul remains the same condition. And that's why we can trust scripture with our life is because the nature of God has not changed and the nature of man is unchanged. And so we can trust God's solution for man in scripture because neither of those things have changed. And so God is, and God, we're going to see that God is faithful throughout all of scripture to accomplish what he intended to do in the, in, in the very first place. So we have this God who's outside of all things and in whom all things hold together is how Colossians describe it. And if that's hard to capture in your mind or in your imagination, it's because we have always existed inside of something. So to imagine someone existing outside of everything, it's beyond our ability to understand. Because even if we walked outside of the school, we still exist in the community of Sterling. And outside of this community of Sterling, we're in Virginia, the United States, a continent, the earth, the, the, the space that was created at the very beginning of things. We always exist inside of something. So to imagine a God who exists outside of everything or in whom all things exist is a difficult thing for us to grab onto. But it's an important thing to understand because God isn't dependent on everything else the way that we're dependent on everything else. And that's the God who we're going to be talking about all through this. And this is the God who produces fruit in our lives when we seek him. We're dependent on him to produce good fruit in our lives, but he's dependent on nothing to produce, us, produce it in us. I don't know. That got me really excited this week when I was studying. I was like, dang, he doesn't need anything and everything comes out of him and everything holds together inside of him. This is really good news for us who run out of things. This is really good news for things that, for those of us who have things that decay, for those of us who don't have enough self-control, for those of us who don't have patience, who don't have love, who don't have joy, is we serve a God who can supply more than enough because he can never run out. Because it flows from him. It doesn't flow just through him. All right, well, I'm excited, clearly. But we need to keep, <laughs> we need to keep going. So, so he created everything, and he deemed everything to be good because good things come out of righteous love. Good things come out of righteous love. Great things, good things come out of righteous love. Perfect love casts out all fear and we need not fear when perfect love is present because good things come from perfect love. I don't know why I felt the need to emphasize that. It wasn't planned, but I, I, feel, like, I feel like sometimes what we want to do is we want to settle for, for it, the imitation of love, be it, be it lust or like or, or hunger for something instead of a love for something that gives and produces. We settle for the counterfeit. And the counterfeits don't produce good things. The, the counterfeits produce confusing things. The counterfeit loves produce difficulty and pain and anguish and confusion. But perfect love produces good things. There was only one thing they couldn't do, Adam and Eve. It said, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. They could do anything they wanted, but they didn't read the terms of the agreement, just like all of us. They, they didn't pay attention to it. They scrolled to the bottom. I got this. And then they saw the apple in, not really the apple, but whatever, we'll use it. And, and they were enticed to consume it for the fear that God was keeping something good from them. Isn't that the reason that we most often go against God's will? We feel like he's holding something back from us that we deserve or that would be good for us or that we want to know. 
I think of that way with my kids when they want to watch a show. I'm like, no, you don't need to watch this show. It wouldn't be profitable for you. It wouldn't be good for you. And they really want to watch it. It's like, no, it's about destruction and pain. And it's going to cause more destruction to your soul than you could even begin to imagine because you, can't, uh, you don't understand the effect that this is going to have on your life. So I'm cutting it off here. And God said, don't eat from this tree because you can't handle, you don't have the capacity of your soul to know what I know. It's going to destroy you. And you won't be able to relate to me. You won't be able to be near to me. You're not even gonna be able to talk to me when you know what you don't know yet if you take of this tree of good and evil. You're gonna bring judgment on yourself because you can't handle what it is. But they were like, no, God's keeping this from us. Anybody feel that way about a rule growing up? You're keeping something from me. Premarital sex, you're keeping that from me. Why you, why you gotta keep that from me? You're enjoying it. Why, why can't I enjoy it? Married people, why are you holding that back from me? Why you got all these rules around it? Because when you, when you, when you step into that relationship, things are going to happen in your soul that you're not going to be able to understand and you're not going to be able to control. Yeah. It's going to set a fire off in your heart that you're not going to be able to contain. And it's going to bring a lot of confusion and a lot of insecurity. People go into a sexual relationship expecting comfort and security, and it breeds exactly the opposite, doesn't it? You're like, dang. Like, I, I slept with this person so that I would know that they love me, and now I'm more terrified when they don't respond my text right away. I'm more terrified when they don't call me back right away, when they cancel the date or when they can't do this or when they can't do that. I live in a state of insecurity and uncertainty because I, I, I stepped into something before it was time. Yeah. Come on. And so here's this. He, we, we have this guy. He said, don't eat of the apple. But we feel that way about all the things, right? Why, do, why on earth do we want the Ten Commandments removed from anywhere? Don't commit adultery. Y'all, that's to our benefit. As children, your parents not committing adultery is to your benefit. As a husband or a wife, it's to your benefit that it would be forbidden for your spouse to cheat on you. This is a good thing. Why do we kick against it? You think about the commandment, thou shalt not murder. If we had the first command, if we had that other commandment right, there'd be less murder. <laughs> right, but not, not all of it, right? But, <laughs> but you see, you're like, why do we, we want to disallow murder? How, in, how messed up are we in our soul? That we're like, no, I insist on the right to murder everybody. Don't limit, don't limit me with your rules. I want to cheat on my wife and murder people. And carve things out of trees and worship them. Honor your mother and father. Why do we kick against that? For everyone in here has a mother and father. Now they might have, they might have failed you horribly. But they gave you life. And in that way they did pretty well. He gave you a pretty awesome gift. And if we honor our mother and father and we pass that down as an inheritance and we've got children honoring mother and father and grandchildren honoring mother and father and great-grandchildren honoring mother and father, what happens? We, we develop and establish this extraordinary legacy. 
but we see a rule and we feel obligated to break it because of the bent in our soul, which is why many of us have paint on our hands, <laughs> literal and figurative paint on our soul. God wasn't satisfied to leave us in this place of brokenness, in this place of fallenness, separated from him. And so what he does, he establishes this redemption plan. And this redemption plan has a couple different parts. What you see is there's a promise of redemption. Then there's a longing for redemption, uh, for redemption. And then there's a fulfillment of this promised redemption. The first promise of redemption comes in Genesis chapter 3, 15. Just after this all goes down, God comes to him. And in this first gospel, in this first promise of salvation, God promised that through the seed of, one, uh, of the woman, through Eve, would come one who would crush the head of Satan. This is the first promise of the Savior and the first great act of God's grace towards us after our rebellion against him. He didn't just hand man off to himself and say, well, you're going to die. He says, well, you're experiencing the pain of death in this time, but I'm coming that you could have life and I'm going to make things right. And that kicks off this, this long history, thousands of years of mankind drawing close to God and then rebelling against him because we didn't like his rules and drawing close to him because we, need, we remember our need for a savior and then, and then rebelling against him and pushing him away and then drawing near again. God all the while calling us to himself, beckoning us to himself, promising us that no, the savior's coming. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to destroy the enemy who led you astray. I'm gonna prove to you once and for all that I'm good and my ways towards you are good and I'm not withholding any good thing from you so much to the point that I'm going to give fully of myself and I'm going to give my best to you. I'm going to give my, the fullness of myself to you and die on a cross to demonstrate my goodness towards you. And so over these thousands of years between Adam and when Jesus comes, there is this longing for redemption where the people are brought into exile during their, during their rebellion, taken away from their promised land and, and, and beaten and enslaved and then sent back. And then, and then they rebel against God and they're taken back into exile to learn the lesson uh, that they need to stay close to God and honor him with their lives. And so they're kind of in and out and back and forth. And there's this longing for redemption. But in the midst of the longing for the redemption to come, these prophets would come. And they'd say, redemption is coming. The promise that was made back in Genesis, that things are going to be made right, is still being worked on. And when the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to look like. This is what he's going to be like. Keep your eyes out. He's coming. God hasn't forgotten you. It's still on its way. All right, and so so you get a, a you're building a more comprehensive idea of what this Messiah is going to be like and what he's going to do, and then we have the fulfillment of the redemption. The promised redemption comes at a time in the midst of empires clashing and fantasied and all sorts of wickedness occurring on the earth, and Jesus shows up on the scene. The Bible says at just the right time. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At just the right time in all of history at this climactic moment where wickedness is increasing and pain is increasing and long, longing and yearning for God's redemption to come is right here at this pinnacle moment. Jesus enters as a baby. As a baby. Looking nothing like what everybody expected to, to fulfill all that he promised he would do. 
and we missed it. By and large, Anna and Simeon got it. The shepherds got it. The angels were watching and cheering on. That's him. They don't know it, but that's him. That's the one who's going to bring the redemption we've been talking about. The the prophets have been talking about for all these thousands of years. That's him. And at just the right time, Christ entered and then died. Not for the godly, but for the ungodly. We get this idea that that God's going to show up in our lives when we get ourselves right enough. We get this idea that that somehow before we can come to God, before God can come to us, we need to come all the way to him and clean up our lives really morally and have ourselves really, really cleaned up. But the reality is that it was to the ungodly that he came and for the ungodly that he died. We have it inverted. We come to him in the love that he's expressed to us. We experience redemption and then we're transformed. This isn't a story of changing ourselves. This is a story of God changing everything. So at just the right time, he comes and he fulfills this thing. But, but he's not, you know, the, here's the thing. He's not, he's not done yet. And for some of us, I think that we think that God's done. And you're a little bit disappointed because you're like, wow, the salvation of God. I thought it would feel better. I expected more of my salvation than this. I gave my life to Jesus, but I, I still get a, a mortgage every month. The rent payment still comes, like the rent, the rent bill still comes. The insurance bill still comes, and you're, you're disappointed with the salvation of God in your life. Has anybody felt that way? Would it be wrong for me to admit that I have? God, I thought we'd be further along by now with me. I thought your salvation would be a little better for me than it's been. Because I'm impatient. And I need, what's that thing? Fruit. Of the Holy Spirit. That brings, what's that thing? Patience. I'm longing for God to, to, to complete something in my soul where I won't be so, so angry and cynical and kind of, kind of negative. I'm longing for God to do that thing in my soul so that when I, when I, when I encounter a difficult time, I don't want to hide from it, but I'm, but I'm pleased to step all the way through it. I, 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 need, I need something that maybe God supplies for people in this kind of situation. <laughs> Self-control. Faithfulness. Family, the purpose for the gifts is to sustain us between the salvation that we've known and the, complete, the completion that's coming that's not yet. We live in a time where we've now, we've had the privilege. So where they had thousands of years of looking forward and longing for redemption and salvation to come, never having tasted it, we're able to look back 2,000 years and go, wow, it's happened, it came, and I get to experience it. In part, we're in a right now and not yet moment of the kingdom where the kingdom of God is being established in us and through us and we get to enjoy the presence of God, those, those moments where, I, I don't know if you, like this morning when we were singing and we're the, uh, oh, what's that last chorus? Um, the earth will shake and tremble before him. What's next? Chains will, Chains will break. 
in trouble. Before, I don't know. It's something, the chains are broken before him. It, it, like we're, we're singing that song and it's like, that's what, that's what's coming in its fullness. But until we experience it in our fullness and it's complete fullness, God didn't just leave us here to feel dejected and lonely and lost. So in the same way that they were in an Advent season 2000 years ago, we find ourselves in an Advent season, even right now where we've experienced the goodness of God in our time, but we long for the the, the total completion of his goodness to come to us in the total, the, in, in the, the washing away of the dark parts of us that are still there. We've, we, we can kind of imagine this heaven where we get redeemed and then we're whisked off into heaven where we get to live with Jesus and baby fat baby are playing naked babies, angel things uh, up in heaven away from everything else. But the promise of scripture is something kind of entirely different. It's that he's creating a new heaven and a new earth where there won't be a separation, where the line between the natural and the supernatural is completely erased. And we live these naturally supernatural lives, but with, without any distinction between the two. And what you end up with is a Jesus who's walking through walls, but also eating fish. Right? And so we're going to have some kind of un, un, otherworldly existence that's promised to us that we get to live in part in this time if we choose the life according to the spirit instead of the life according to the flesh. What we see all through scripture is what happens when people live their life according to the flesh. And what we see here is a promise of what's possible if we live life according to the spirit. One which gives us death. One which brings us life. And the life that it brings sustains us in the time while we wait for God's perfect promises to be fully fulfilled, fully, fully uh, brought to completion in a way that for now we dream of. For now we look at scripture and we see the new heaven and the earth, new earth that's promised in, in Revelation. It says in Revelation 21, I'll go back one slide. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the, the, the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That line is erased. The dwelling place of God is with man, without hindrance. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You know what this is echoing? It's echoing Exodus 19. When the commandment, for, when, the, when the Ten Commandments were given, it's like, hey, we're going to enter into this agreement. You're not going to worship other gods. You're not going to kill each other. You're not going to cheat on each other. You're going to be faithful to each other. You're going to honor the order that I've established things in by honoring your mother and father. And, and you're not going to covet one another's things. And you're going you're to be generally, you're going to love me and you're going to be good to each other. And this is what it's going to be like. That's what he, that's what he promised him. So he's echoing it again. And he's saying, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Family, this is the longing that we can have in this time. So as we remember the coming of sweet baby Jesus. To a people in a dark time, we can look at our time and go, hey, this is dark too, but Jesus isn't done yet. Yeah. Family, it's a promise that he's not done yet. It's a promise that he's going to sustain us in the midst of not being done yet. He gave us some trail mix to eat on the journey to this new heaven and this new earth. 
that he's promised to fulfill in the same way he was faithful to fulfill it. He's going to be faithful to fulfill this one. I promised my son that I'd, that I'd mention this today. Uh, earlier this week, he said, Dad, I think you should preach about Jesus kicking Satan in the head. And I'm like, you know what, son? We need that message. And I want to just kind of like out of, the words of, out of the mouths of kids, right? What was the promise that was made to Eve in Genesis 3.15? that one would come from her whose heel would crush the head. Jesus has crushed the head of the enemy of your life. He's kicked it like a soccer ball. But he's not done yet. There's a greater hope and a future promise that is yet to be fulfilled. He's going to do it. And while we anticipate it's coming, we have the fruit of the Spirit to bring us through.